Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Over the next uh, several months, we will be uh, working our way th uh, through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 5 through 7. Then, beginning in January, we'll come back to the passage that we're looking at this morning and, and break it down verse by verse, uh, and then, uh, uh, and which will take us through the uh, end of this school year. Uh, it's vitally important section of Scripture as Jesus has given to us. And so uh, we come to it and praying that God would use it to speak to us, whether these, this is familiar to us or whether this is really the first time that we've seriously considered uh, what, uh, what God has said in this passage. Uh, before we uh, go to the word, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we give thanks to you that you have given to us your word in recorded form. For while you continue to speak, we are poor antennas and often hearing what we want to hear, whatever the thoughts of our own hearts are, and assuming that that is you. And yet at the same time, Lord, you have promised that you speak and can get through all of the static of our lives. And your spirit does speak to us, reminding us of the truth that you have recorded and applying it to every portion of us. I pray now that we would listen for your voice and that by your grace, you would enable us to gain from your word, to understand what you have said, and to understand our own hearts, so that by your word, you might shape our affections, our actions, our full lives. Shape us and use us, that you might be pleased, and that we might be a blessing to all those around us, to all you bring into our presence. We pray this for the sake of Christ, and for the joy that is ours in him. Amen. All men seek happiness. This is without any exception. Whatever different means uh, one is inclined to employ, uh, they all tend toward the end of our own happiness. Happiness is the motive of, of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. Thus, so says the great philosopher, mathematician, Blaise Pascal. And he's right, isn't he? I mean, think about it. Why do you do whatever it is that you do? Or why do I do what I do? The reason is because in doing certain things, we have the hope that it will bring us more happiness. If not immediate happiness, we go through certain chores, certain actions, sometimes because at least it will avert things that would bring us unhappiness, and others because we realize that all things are complex, and sometimes we do things that the domino effect at the end of the road will be that we will experience the happiness that we so desperately desire. And even though it's dark, Pascal pointed out that that's true whether we do the good things in our lives or even things that are, are foolish, that bring punishment upon ourselves. There's just something within the psyche of all humanity that we, we feel guilty, we know that we should be punished, and we feel better when we've suffered whatever it is we think we ought to suffer. And even those who have gone to the extreme and feel that they are at the end of the rope, and it, and it comes tragically to an end, it's because they've resolved somehow in their mind and in their heart that whatever it is that is before them is so hard that death itself would actually be preferable, would bring relief, and would bring them, in a sense, uh, more happiness, more joy. Happiness is the reason that people do everything. 
And if that's true, then I think it's important for us to ask this question, are you happy? I mean, are you truly happy right now, deep down happy? For many of you, the answer is, is absolutely yes. I mean, you know that you've been blessed, you know who you are, and you are deeply happy. For others of you, I know the answer right now is no. Circumstances in your life or frustrations with yourself leaves you feeling significantly lacking, and so you're not experiencing the happiness that you long for. Probably for most of us here, the answer would be, eh, yeah, but not a deep, deep-seated happiness. In other words, things aren't bad, but we long for more. And so we have experiences of happiness, though they seem to be fleeting, maybe more happiness than sadness, but nevertheless not something that brings us satisfaction. I mean, that's probably in a personal level, but how about in a societal level? Are we a happy people? Let me give you some statistics. Studies tell us that one in 10 Americans over the age of 12 are clinically depressed. There are over 400 name brand medications on the market today for anti-anxiety and antidepressant. And over the past 20 years, or really less than 20 years, the use of antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications has increased over 400%. I think it's safe to say that as a people, we are not a happy people. Now, for those who struggle with issues of depression, I'm not in any way pointing a finger at you. I'm susceptible to depression. I, I know the darkness. I know the siren song or the voices that calls you irrationally to wallow in whatever self-pity that also condemns. And I've had to learn to not only deal with whether diet and exercise, but even spiritually, how to speak, even as the psalmist does, and says, why are you so downcast, O my soul? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. And work through that whole process that God has given. I understand that. But yet it still strikes me and makes me sad to realize that what I experience is shared by so many. And that so many experience it at significantly deeper levels than I do. My point is not to depress those of you who are depressed. Or to point out and say, what's wrong with you? But at the risk of sounding like I'm saying misery loves company. There is way too much company. And those of you who are prone to depression feel like you are alone. And those of you who are not prone to depression have no idea that the situation is that bad. I mean, are we a happy people? We may be the most blessed nation in the history of the earth, but we're a mess. I think it's safe to say we've been pursuing happiness in all the wrong places and we're finding the results uh, not to our liking. But it also leads me to wonder this, is if it's quite possible that the answer, the remedy to our unhappiness, the hope for happiness, is not found in some new medication or new therapy or new research or some new toy or a new home or a new whatever it is that you think is going to bring the satisfaction, bring the happiness that we so desire. But I wonder if the answer, the remedy, the hope, while not found in something old, is actually found in something new, is found in something that's quite old. You know, obviously, 
I've come to the conclusion that the answer is yes. Because what we will read here in a moment, the study that we're beginning uh, this morning, on the study of the Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus' instructions for us. And I believe firmly that not only do we experience happiness, but what's more important is we experience happiness when we are in line with this, because this is exactly what God has promised. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is familiar to many. Listen to what theologian and scholar John Stott says about the Sermon on the Mount, the study that we're beginning this morning. The Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it's the least understood, and certainly it's the least obeyed. It is the nearest thing to a manifesto that he ever uttered, for it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do. See, what we are beginning this morning is the manifesto of the kingdom that Jesus Christ has given to us. It is a description of being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. It's a description and a prescription for those who are part of the kingdom of heaven. And while Stott is correct in the sense of saying it's well known, not necessarily understood, and certainly not obeyed, we know that from our own experience, whether you've been a believer in a church for a long time or whether you've just known people that are part of the church and you're trying to figure out what this Christianity thing is all about. Because you find people that are on the theological right and the theological left, whether the theological liberals or theological conservatives, all pointing to this particular text, recognizing there's a manifesto. Those who would be on the theological left or theological liberals will say, see, I live by the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, the ethical standards that are found in this, they are just so universal, so common. They're the reflection, the Christian expression of the universal values. And if everybody would just live these, whatever religion you express well, then this world would be a much better place. We would all have our best life now. On the other side, we have the theological conservatives, the theological right, who look at this and realize that's just a bunch of, you know, touchy-feely social gospel whatever, and saying, if you think that this is easy, then you're crazy. See, what Jesus is doing here is he's talking to people who, looking at the Old Testament law, thought that it was something they could keep. And so Jesus says, I'll see your law and I'll raise you even more. And this is the law that we're supposed to live by. And this law is serious and intense and it is radically different than every other religion in the world. And then they argue and they debate about it, which is the ugliest, perhaps, of all for those who are not believers. I love the experience and the expression of one older uh, believer, a godly giant, theological and, and uh, Christian giant, when he said that whenever I hear people saying and appealing, saying that they live the Sermon on the Mount, the most charitable response that I believe I can offer towards such people is to assume they've never actually read it. Because the Sermon on the Mount is intense. The Sermon on the Mount is powerful. The Sermon on the Mount is undoing. And the Sermon on the Mount is demanded at the same time. And so those who say that we are to live the Sermon on the Mount, they are right. Those who say that they are living the Sermon on the Mount, they are nuts. But this is what Jesus has given to us. For his own purposes. To offer us happiness. 
in an ultimate sense. Now, the section we're going to read here in a moment is commonly known as the Beatitudes. Despite the way that it sounds, the word Beatitude is not what it's been titled to be in certain books. Be happy or... as The word Beatitude actually has nothing to do with attitude. The word Beatitude comes from the Latin Beatitudo, for those of you who... Um, who, who uh, who know your Latin? Those of you who don't, this is one of the easier ones. It sounds exactly like the, uh, the word that we use. But the Latin beatitude simply means happiness, which is why some books are out there, some good, not, some not so good, that are titled the Be Happy Attitudes. And as we look at this, we're going to recognize that in each of the beatitudes that there are really two phrases, two clauses. The first is a condition, and the second is a response or, 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 or a, 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 a consequence, a promise that God has made. But these are to be taken both individually and as a whole. And in such, Jesus is saying, this is the beginning of the shaping of my people. The Beatitudes serve as an overview and an outline of the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. So now if you'll take your Bibles, let's read Matthew 5, beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, For they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who went before you. These are the words of Jesus in what Stott calls his manifesto, the kingdom manifesto, which is what we have, I have titled uh, this series, as at least the uh, overall part of the series. But as we look at this section of the Beatitudes this morning, we're looking at that as, as a whole, and then again, beginning in January, we'll look at them individually. But as we look at them as a whole, there are certain principles, certain truths that are important for us to grasp, to take home today, not only because they help us to understand what Jesus is saying here, but also because they do shape us, our minds, our hearts, and our lives in a very real way. Jesus is penetrating deep and then directing us in the way of godliness. He is the embodiment of all of these, and therefore he is inviting us to follow after him. So the first thing that we look at this that I want you to see is that I believe that the, the Beatitudes remind us this, that attitude is everything. Now, some of you are probably perhaps scratching your head thinking I just said a moment ago that the word Beatitude has absolutely nothing to do with attitude. And I did say that, and I stand by that. The word beatitude comes from the Latin word that simply means happiness. It doesn't mean attitude. But now I'm saying attitude means everything. 
Now, there's a reason that I'm saying that, and it's a good reason. The word attitude, while we tend to think of it, it means to us, most of us, we think about attitude as the way that we feel about something, or even sometimes the way that we project ourselves. There's a phrase, you know, copying an attitude, which if you have middle schoolers or teenagers, you know exactly what that means. If you've been a middle schooler or a teenager, you probably have done it, but you just don't remember it. Copying an attitude could be anything, any presentation, but it seems that it's only used when we kind of ornery or obnoxious, ugly, oppressive. But nevertheless, it's a matter of posturing ourselves. And when I say attitude means everything, it does seem to feed into our cultural ideas that it really doesn't matter what's real as long as you can present something, whether it's positive or negative, you're communicating yourself. I think there's a place for that, but that's not what I mean when I say attitude means everything. Now, my understanding of aeronautically is the word attitude has a very definite sense to it that is different than the vague idea of you know, how we feel about things. But in my understanding, having spoken with a, a pilot years ago in a conversation with him, and he was using the word attitude, it dawned on me he was doing something different. And, and he explained to me that an attitude is the relationship between an axis, which would be the plane usually, and some solid object, usually the ground or whatever. And the nature of the word attitude is just simply defines the relationship, whether it's an orientation toward it, an orientation away from it, a parallel. That's what attitude means. And I think that if we understand that aspect of attitude, it makes all the sense in the world that we would say attitude means everything when Jesus has given us these words. Because very real sense, these words help us to understand our orientation, our relationship toward God or away from God, toward people or away from people, toward the kingdom of God or away from the kingdom of God. We understand our relationship because these words, these principles, these points all show us ways of gauging. And so when we look at this list, point by point or as a whole, we realize our lives, our hearts are even either pointing toward God or they're pointing away. Now, that said, I think that the other way of attitude, the way that we commonly understand it, also applies here as well. Because when we look at these lists, this is not just a list of instructions of what to do. Even if it was a list of instructions of what to be, you're not capable of simply making it happen. It's not like you can say, okay, today I resolve and then these things will be true of you. For these things to become true of you, or for these things to mark you, it's not just about your behavior, it's about whether you embrace a mindset that is defined by each of these points. It does have something to do with how you feel. Christianity is not just about moral behavior. Christianity, God, Jesus grabs your heart we're called not just to do things that please God. We're called to love God with all of our heart, our mind, and our strength. In one sense, that fits with what we call attitude. And doing so means that we have an aeronautical attitude that is toward God. When we look at this list of things, we need to realize attitude is everything. Whether it's the orientation towards God and his kingdom orientation towards people and how we feel about God, his law, and our neighbors. 
Now, we also need to see, as we look at this, is that attitude itself, well, attitude is everything. Attitude also does things. Attitude shapes our attributes. Now, if I wasn't trying to be alliterative and I would say it in normal English, I would say our attitude actually shapes our character. How we feel, what we value, our orientation toward God, toward people, toward the world, our orientation toward anything, it shapes the values that we have, and therefore it shapes the character that we possess. And we see that revealed here in this list. These are not only attitudes of how we feel, but these are descriptions of individual character. Somebody who is capable of mourning, what's the opposite of mourning? Somebody who is insensitive and incapable of caring for anybody else. That's the character spectrum. We look at the blessed the one who is meek, and the opposite of meek is, is not strong, but one who is self-absorbed, thinking highly of himself, lacking humility. All of these, if we look at that, one of the ways that we understand that these are an expression of character is if we consider what the opposite of what Jesus is saying is reflective of, of Christianity, of those who are followers. What is the opposite of the character of Jesus Christ? And so it's quite evident here that this is not just how we ought to feel as followers of Jesus Christ, but the character traits that we have within us. Now, it's also important when we look at this is to realize that what this is not is an ancient Myers-Briggs test. You know, that one of you comes out and says, yeah, I'm a, uh, you know, an, an, an MM, you know, whatever. Uh, I'm mournful and merciful. Um, you know, that's, that's me, that's my type, and, you know, just the way God made me, and so that's who I am, and these other things, that might be you. And this is not a range. This is taken in whole. This is what it means to be Christ-like because these are the expression of Jesus Christ. So we need to realize that what Jesus has presented here is not dealing with your temperament or some of your natural inclinations. It is the full description of godliness. Now, the fact is, some of you have some of these characteristics more evident in your life than others of us. And others of you have other characteristics that are not necessarily true of others. Some of you have these more down than some of us have any of them. But all of them are a reflection of the character of Christ. Now, understanding the weightiness of these things, and if we take this seriously, and realizing that the measure is not that we just show certain aspects of it, but that Christ is the full measure of this, we look at this list, and it'd be very easy to look at this list and realize, I don't have any of these. I mean, not truly, not consistently, much less all of these. Well, I must not be a blessed person. In fact, I wonder if I'm actually a Christian because if this is what marks the Christians and this is not true of me, then I don't know if, what my hope is. If you look at this, and there's a sense in which I do hope you look at this and that thought not only comes to mind, but that whole idea of the undoing that this list does for us, I hope that you do embrace it because we need to look at this list and realize that there is a poverty of spirit that actually is the qualifier for becoming part of the kingdom of God. It's actually the first beatitude that Jesus speaks of. Blessed is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the one who receives the kingdom of heaven is the one that looks at this list and then looks at their life and their heart and their character and realizes, I'm bankrupt. I'm lacking. 
Even what I have is insignificant, inconsequential. Jesus is bringing about this in order to bring us to the end of ourselves and remind us of what he has said, that we enter the kingdom of God only as those who come with nothing of our own, with the exception of our own sin, because that is what we bring to the table. Jesus says, I didn't come for those who were good. I didn't come for those who were healthy. I came for those who are sick. I came for those who are not righteous. They're the ones that I have come to. Because the ones who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy, not trying to leverage certain commodities that they think that they have, but realizing what they have adds up to nothing, are the ones that reach up to the Lord and say, Lord, have mercy, and are the ones who have their hands out to which God pours out his grace. And the promise here is the one who recognizes their spiritual bankruptcy, the one who is poor in spirit, they are the ones that not only receive grace that forgives your sin, but pours down. Yours is the kingdom of God. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. It's vitally important that we understand that, that this is the qualifier for us, that God's promise speaks to us, not to give us a standard of things to work our way toward him, but when it is broken in us and we recognize that we lack, then we begin to have, because all that we have is a gift that comes from God. Now, at the same time, I don't want to suggest that we have nothing if we are in Christ. These are not blessings that are just off someplace. These are very real. But if you are one who looks at this list and you're frustrated with your life because you realize this is not the way people that know you would describe you, I want you to notice that in this text, there is a future orientation. Many of these things will be cultivated in time and will come to fruition at a time later on. The seed is there, but the reality may not. But that doesn't mean that it's not go the seed is not going to grow and bloom. And I, I recognize that because I look at these, beginning in verse 4, there's a significant word there that has a future orientation. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, those are the promises and related. The promises are going to be fulfilled later on. But as the promises that are being fulfilled, we also need to realize so is the character trait. When we come to Christ, we come to Christ somewhere in the, uh, on a spectrum, but we are a work in process. And the scriptures remind us, God has promised, the work that he began in us, he will see through to the end. So there's a real sense in which we need to be growing in these things, and these things should be evident in some way in our lives, but the fact that they are not in full bloom and not showing the full beauty shouldn't cause us angst and frustration because there's a sense in which these characteristics are a future promise. And for many of us, the fullness of this is not going to happen in this lifetime, at least by anybody's measure. For all of us, we'll never reach the full measure of Christ and be what this is describing for us until the next life. But we are to be growing in these, and we should see that evidence because he is at work within us. But at the same time, this is not just something that is only future. We realize the promises of God are present and very real. And we understand that also by this text. Because look at the first beatitude in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And move down to uh, verse 9, uh, excuse me, verse 10. Blessed, uh, um, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for 
Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the promises of God that he is at work within you has already begun, and, your pre- and the kingdom of God already belongs to you. And if the kingdom of God already belongs to you, then God is at work, and these things are promised that he will continue to cultivate in you. It's vitally important that we understand that these are very real blessings, that God has not just promised to bless us, but he has blessed us. The kingdom of God is ours, and it's shaping our character. Now, how has God blessed us? Well, Jesus is giving an overview here, but Paul picks it up, and I think one of the most succinct ways, at least that we'll look at this morning, is in Ephesians 1, verse 3. Paul writes this, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So how has God blessed us? Since the kingdom of God is ours, if we are in Christ. Well, he's blessed us by enabling us to be in Christ. We are in him where every promise is fulfilled. He also says that he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Not that he will, but that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Doesn't say that he's blessed us with every material blessing. Some of you he's blessed, others of you less so, some of you not at all. But that's not the promise of God by which he should be measured, whether he's faithful. If God didn't promise that, then that's not the measure. The fact that we have anything is an indication that God is good and gracious. But this promise is that he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing, which sounds so religious, doesn't it? What in the world does that mean? Let me just give you two examples. First is he's blessed us with faith. That's a spiritual blessing. The scripture tells us that faith is a gift that came from God. We didn't figure it out on ourselves. That if you believe, which is required in order to be in Christ, where all of the blessings are found, it is a gift that he's given you. It's a spiritual blessing. He's given you the gift of faith. It is the one that unlocks the treasure chest of all of the others. Because it's faith in what Jesus has done by which we benefit with every spiritual blessing and every blessing that God has promised in his word. Second spiritual blessing is the Holy Spirit sometimes referred to as the down payment or the earnest payment of all the promises of God. It's the Holy Spirit that dwells within all who believe, who has been at work within those who believe to give them the gift of faith in the first place. It's the Holy Spirit that brings us to the conviction of our sins and then points us to what Jesus has done so that we can apply faith, trusting in him, through which we receive forgiveness and peace and gifts for which we are able to serve others and power to do more than we thought it was quite possible at all. And even through the Holy Spirit and faith, righteousness, which is one of the Beatitudes itself. You see, when we believed, we were declared not only forgiven, we were declared righteous in Christ. And it's interesting that one of the Beatitudes is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, because in one sense we've already been given it. In another sense, we still are lacking and needing it. I mean, think about it this way. Why would you hunger and why would you thirst if you already had your full, right? I mean, when do you hunger? It's when you haven't eaten in about 15 minutes. But uh, um, when do you thirst? It's when whatever you last drank, assuming that it was actually something that quenches thirst and not dehydrates you, has worked its way through. And now you are in need of something else thirst. But as soon as you drink your full or have your meal, you're not hungry anymore. 
So there is a peculiarity of the promises of Scripture that sometimes we get confused about. We are declared righteous, and yet we're told to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Which is it? And the answer is both. See, scripturally speaking, biblically speaking, we need to understand that something happens at the point of our conversion, and something happens over time. Scripture talks about righteousness in two senses. There's a legal sense, which is known as imputed righteousness, and there's an actual sense, which is known as actual righteousness. Imputed righteousness is what we don't have, but it is counted as ours. When we believe, we were counted and credited with the righteousness of Christ. In other words, not only were we forgiven of sin, but all the perfection of Christ was counted as ours if it's in our bank account. The illustration that I like to use about this is the difference between a credit card and a debit card. See, if you have a debit card and you go and pay for something, you are paying out of the resources that you have earned are now in your bank. If you hand over a credit card, you are paying for something that might as well be yours. It's counted as yours. You have the right to use it, but it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to Bank of America or somebody else. And they will remind you of that if you don't pay them back. That's where the illustration breaks down. In a real sense, when we became believers, we were not only forgiven, but we were given the credit of all that belongs to Jesus, which is far greater than a gold card, and inexhaustible riches that now are counted as yours. They're not yours. They are Jesus's. But the gap over time between what we're credited with and what we will grow into diminishes because God has promised to be at work within us. And so as we believe, faith propels us to do good, which is the definition of righteousness, more and more we grow in righteousness and we die to our own sin until that day in which we actually meet the standard of full righteousness in our own lives, which may not be in this life. It won't be in this life for us. But there will come a day when our actual righteousness meets the righteousness that we are credited with. But the amazing thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ is this, not just that this happened, not just that you've been credited, but on that day when you are actually as righteous as you've been credited, you will be no more legally righteous on that day than you are on this day or on the day you first believed. Because the fullness of righteousness of Christ is counted as yours as a gift from God from a spiritual blessing that comes simply by the spiritual blessing of faith in Christ, which is a spiritual blessing, down payment by the Holy Spirit, which is a spiritual blessing. We have spiritual blessings running out everywhere. And this is the promise of God. And those spiritual blessings are at work and they shape our character and our values. And it's vitally important that we understand that. It's an incredible promise of God. And the Beatitudes point us to both what is real and what is coming and reminds us of what has been done for us. And so we've seen that attitude is everything. Attitude expresses itself, or attitude uh, cultivates character, or attitude um, develops our attributes. But our attitude also propels us into action. Our character also demands that we be in action it's part of the covenantal nature of being in relationship with God. When God called Abraham, he said, I'm going to call you. You're going to be my people. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless those who come after you who are part of your family. And then you will be a blessing to all the nations of the world. Now, ultimately, that was through the biological line that, through which Christ was born. 
And the world is blessed in the person of Jesus Christ, that people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue can now be made right with God because in the line of Abram, Christ was given. But as an everlasting covenant that was made with Abram, and we're told in Galatians that if we, if we are in Christ and we are heirs of Abram, the same thing is true. God is our God. We are God's people. God will bless us, but his purpose in blessing us is not so that we can hoard up all the blessings. He is shaping us that we would bless all the nations of the earth, which would certainly include our neighbors. That's the covenantal nature of God. And Jesus reflects that here in these Beatitudes. I mean, there's two in particular, although certainly an argument can be made that all of these. But look at verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. See, mercy is not just an attitude. It is an attitude, but compassion would be an attitude. Compassion is the thing that says, I feel your pain and really needs it. Mercy may feel the pain, and it does feel the pain, but isn't satisfied with simply identifying and sympathizing. Mercy seeks out that which is broken, that which is hurting, and finds a remedy. It gives grace. It pours out blessing to those who are without it. It is an action. The merciful are not merciful if they are not acting. And so as the people of God, we are called to look in the broken parts of this world, in the lives of one another, in the life of the church overall, and the bro those who are hurting throughout the world that belong to Christ and in our neighborhoods and every broken. The scripture does not tell us only for. Scripture says, do good for all people, but especially those in the household of faith. We're called to extend mercy, to be God's vessels of mercy to every aspect of brokenness in our community. That's characteristic. It's a mission. It's an attitude propelled into action. We see another one in verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, what's a peacemaker? A peacemaker is not just one who is at peace with everyone. A peacemaker is one who cultivates peace all around them. There's an old saying that I've heard that I've also found to be true that says this. There are some people who bring joy wherever they go. There are other people who bring joy whenever they go. And the same would be true for peace. You know those people. There are certain people that they come and you realize they see that you are at odds with another person, whether they even know the other person, and they want the reconciliation and the wholeness for you because they realize perhaps the greatest source of unhappiness that we have is the fractures and the brokenness of the relationships in our lives. And the peacemaker seeks to reconcile people who are in conflict with one another. It is the gospel lived out in relationship. The peacemaker is also doing so not only because it brings happiness, because it's a reflection of Christ, because the scriptures tell us that in Christ God has reconciled to himself all things. And so being the peacemaker, there is nothing better as a reflection of who God is and what makes him different from every other false god that is out there. God is concerned not only about those who are his, but about the reflection of peace because he himself is at peace. But both of these are characteristics that are not attitudes and character only. They are actions. They propel us. And so when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly in these Beatitudes, we realize this is a full orb. This is about our minds, our hearts, our values, the character in our lives, and the actions and the relationship that we have to the world around us. It is our attitude and orientation to God and orientation to the world around us. This is full. And the promise of Jesus in this, based on the words that he uses, is 
blessed or happy is the person that this is true of. And it's not a fleeting happiness. It's not, it makes me happy. It is a standard, it's a status. It is a condition that this is where happiness is found. Which makes me ask the question, what if these were more true of me? What if these were more true of us? What if these were more true of Christ's church in our culture? And I'm inclined to believe that if this is what people saw of us, we would not have the impotence and the opposition that we're presently experiencing. Now, I'm not naive and I'm not unfaithful to recognize that in this is also, blessed are you when you are faithful, when this is true of you, when you are Christ-like, and people hate you because of that. But I think people hate us because we've been obnoxious and neglecting being like Christ more than because we are too much like Christ, don't you? What if these things shaped our minds, our attitudes, our values, and propelled us into action? What then would be the impact? And I think that just as was said about the disciples in the early days, they are turning the world upside down. Because at least if we were rejected, it would be clear as because we are like Christ, not because we're jerks. But the promise of God for those of us who believe is while we don't measure up, because we know that we don't measure up, there is grace, there is mercy, and we are his works. And he will shape us and make us this way in time. My prayer is that he will bear this fruit in us in visible, increasing measure. That we may bless one another, bless our neighbors, the nations, which ultimately we become blessings to God. Let me pray. Father, we do give thanks to you that you have blessed us through your word. And pray that in this, we would take this seriously. We would be both broken and made whole. We would be both mourning and given hope. We would be amazed and stand in praise for you, despite our failures, did not despise us, but loved us, becoming one of us in Christ, in order that we might become like you. Father, as we consider these words, as we study them together, may this be more and more true of us here at Grace Covenant. I pray in Jesus. Amen.